we've had a wonderful time uh, in uh, the state of Virginia and West Virginia. I have several weeks there, and uh, there's a lot of things we could say that we're very encouraged about. Every week I, we were in a Christian school. I really do believe the Lord met with us, and it was great encouragement to see a portion of this Christian school, usually a larger portion, really respond to the Lord, deal with things. And uh, some of you have seen three of the students from Shenandoah Valley there uh, in Edinburgh, Virginia, that are here for Cola Clash, and I mean, for Warmax, I'll get it down. I'll say Cola Clash more than once. How many have already done that, said Cola Clash, when you should have said something else? Okay, well, uh, that don't feel too bad, but they're here for that. Came a day early, so any of you that have already reached out, thank you. Continue to reach out to them, and they're, of course, seriously looking at the schools, so we're excited about that possibility. Okay, the book of uh, Hebrews, just want to look at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, just for a quick uh, jump into something here, Hebrews 4 and verse number 12. And I want to say, uh, on the outset of something like this, um, uh, the Generation U Summit, I want us just to consider something, just theologically, uh, what, are we, what are we looking at to be life-changing in the lives of these young people? For those of you, how many of you out here sense that you might have the gifting of the evangelist? And that is where, you, at least at this point, that's where you think you are. Can I see your hands, please? Boy, we don't have as many as we used to. Okay, that's all right. Uh, they kind of rumble things up wherever they go if they're a true evangelist. Okay, but uh, that's not always good. They'll learn to temper that in time. But uh, uh, how many are pastors? Believe you have the gift that pastor headed toward pastors? Okay. How many don't know who you are or what you are? Okay, that's okay. We'll just pray you get it, get, uh, get a, a feel for where you are. But if you're going to be in pulpit ministry or any kind of verbal ministry, which as a parent you'll be in verbal ministry, so I guess it includes all of you, uh, you need to understand what is it that brings life change? What is it that, that when you, uh, it's like this, uh, you, you and I both know we love to see kids get saved and we love to see people get right with God, but it is far more exciting to meet them a year later or to hear from a year later and realize they're still on the path. And that's exciting. I'm sure I think Mateo gave a testimony of a young man got saved last summer in Terre Haute, Indiana, got baptized just a few weeks ago in the church. Now that's exciting. Kid just straight out of the community came and got saved. Okay, we all want to hear somebody really uh, with a life change. In fact, uh, just uh, a few days ago, uh, um, a daughter, uh, a young, uh, how do I say this? I got to say this. I think this is being recorded, so I have to be careful. But a Major League Baseball player's daughter uh, got saved out in California a year ago. In fact, he's pretty well known. He's on the Los Angeles Dodgers, I'll give you that much. And he played, uh, played here in the last few days. But uh, his daughter got saved about a year ago out in California. And she just texted Rebecca, who led her to the Lord, and said, hey, it's been a year since I've gotten saved. Now, that's an encouragement. When you hear people like that, God has done a life-changing work in their heart and they're on the trail, and that's, uh, that's a blessing. Okay, now, with all that being said, I want us to look at what is it from the Bible, from a theological standpoint, that we're going to depend upon for life change. Okay, what is it? What is it when you and I go into ministry, what is it we depend upon? It's like this, friends. When you get a confidence in what God has given us, the weapons He's given us, then you can walk into a week with complete confidence, not in yourself, but in, the, in your gifting and in the tools that God has given. So I want to just preach a message called the dynamics of change. The dynamics of change and really just trying to get you ready for a couple of days where we are praying for change. So here's a couple of applications. Number one, uh, what are we going to depend upon to see life change in the young people that are coming on the campus here in a few hours? Number two, what are we going to depend on to see life change in our lives? Okay, that's fair. See, the, this uh, The Generation Youth Summit obviously is not just for the young people coming in. I trust that all of us are coming into this saying, God, do a work in my heart. I don't know about you, friends. I do not enjoy conviction, but I am grateful God does it. 
And I, I will tell you, and I'm sure Brother Himes could tell you, that it uh, doesn't matter how old you get, God still convicts you and uh, under the preaching of the Word of God. And I'm grateful that He does. I call conviction spiritual pain, spiritual pain. And for all of us in this room, there's nothing that would be more damaging to you physically is if you lost your pain. Because pain is a great alarm. In fact, they say that one of the big issues with leprosy is not just the debilitating degree. One of the issues that causes it so much damage is the absence of pain. And people do things that deeply injure them. And uh, it's a very interesting study on what leprosy really, one of the major issues of it was the absence of pain. So pain is certainly something in the physical realm we don't have to go into, a very important thing. Many of us, in fact, uh, it's interesting when it comes to heart attacks, they say that some people can have heart attacks and have no pain. And I was talking to somebody about that, and I said, well, what happens? said, they die. I'm thinking, you know what? It kind of would be nice to have the pain. You know what I'm talking about? Because at least you'd call the doctor and say, hey, i got a problem. Call 911. They could come in there. Why? Pain's a good thing. I think all of us would recognize if you and I ever have a heart attack, I don't know about you, I think I'd like a lot of pain. You know what I'm talking about? So much pain, I know it wasn't the hamburger I ate the night before. You know what I'm talking about? Now, if you don't know about that, there's a few times in my life I have eaten something I should have eaten and woke up in the morning and thought I was having a heart attack. But four times later, I realized it was not a heart problem, okay? You know what I'm talking about. Last night, uh, I was at Moe's Southwest Grill, and any of you Milwaukee people don't know what I'm talking about because they don't have Moe's around here. How many know, know what I'm talking about, Moe's Southwest Grill? I was at Moe's Southwest Grill. Hey, said, puts on jalapenos. He put, uh, I said, those are the wrong ones, so she put other ones on. And I want to tell you something, friend, I've been tasting those jalapenos ever since, okay? Now, this morning I woke up and said, man, I'm not feeling real great about this. I'm getting some pains, places I shouldn't have. And uh, three times later, I'm doing great. Okay, so there are sometimes, of course, pain can be mistaken, but pain is obviously something very important, and so is conviction. Now, how does God bring conviction? Because I would hope that every one of us, as we go into these days, we may not relish spiritual pain, conviction, but I would hope we would be desiring it if it's needed. Now, let me just make a distinction here as we dive into this uh, study real quickly, just to make an important distinction between Holy Spirit inspection and human introspection. Now you'll hear me say this multiple times, you freshmen, because one of the dangers of coming to a school like Baptist College of Ministry where there is a pursuit of God and a pursuit of spirituality is that you can fall into the pitfall of human introspection. Do you know the Bible does not say, search me, O me. It says, search me, help me out now, O God. And for some of you highly sensitive people, I am begging you to not move toward human introspection. This is the way I look at it. God, I just want you to know, if you want to do something, you want to search me, I'm open and willing for you to search me, but I'm not searching myself. So it's very important for you just to be willing for God to do the searching. Don't get into that, oh, there must be something wrong. Listen, if there's something wrong and uh, you have a tender heart, God's going to show you. Okay, so don't get down that trail because that often is the enemy who is uh, what I would call counterfeit conviction and he uses human introspection to do it. So we're looking for a Holy Spirit inspection. You say, what's the difference between something that might have the fingerprints of the devil and that which might be of God. Some of you have heard me talk about this before, but let me just review because uh, many times we need the review. And that is simply this. Anything that's got the fingerprints of the devil in leads toward no hope, despair. Holy Spirit, whenever God's Holy Spirit's in something, it always brings, don't miss this, hope. Can I put it this way? The Holy Spirit will always take you to Calvary, and the enemy will always take you to Sinai. Okay, so you have to understand what, uh, what, is, what is either human or the enemy or what is God. Okay, so understanding that, let's look at the dynamics that God has given us here in His Word. Look at verse number 12. We know this word, where, uh, this particular verse. For the Word of God is quick and powerful. 
Now, we all know that word quick is, is the noun form of the verb quicken, okay? So it has the idea of alive. It's not a noun or an adjective, I should say, that we use much anymore in a conversational American English, but of course, it's not hard to figure it out if you know the word quicken we do use. And that's the verb, and of course, this is the noun or the adjective. And so the Word of God is, that's what it is. It's alive. It, it makes us, it's that which, it's the reviver. So the first thing I want you to see, the dynamic of change, is the Word of God. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, tonight when I preach and throughout the week, I'm going to promise you this, I'm going to preach from the Word of God. I'm not preaching from Time Magazine nor Newsweek, not even Fox News. Okay, I'm going to be preaching from the Word of God. Because, friends, I will tell you, that I don't understand it. I'll be honest with you, I do not totally understand it. But I will tell you that's where the power is. So the dependence first you have to have is on the Word of God. Marie Monson was a missionary in, in China for a while, and when she got there, I think I've mentioned this before, she was told by older missionaries, as she would go out and try to evangelize the women in the villages, she was told no Chinaman gets saved on their first gospel encounter. Now, don't get me wrong, most people don't get saved on their first gospel encounter. But I will tell you, I believe people can get saved on their first gospel encounter, that God can prepare their hearts in such a way that they are ready. I think it was a couple of weeks ago, I can't remember the exact conversation with somebody who had just gotten saved, a young man who had just gotten saved, and, and he basically told me, this is the first time I've ever heard uh, the message of the gospel. And he got saved that first gospel encounter. Certainly that can happen. Now, Marie Monson, when she was told by the older missionaries that you could not see a China lady, a China woman get saved on a first gospel encounter, she said I, she struggled with that theologically. And so she found a tool that was absolutely amazing. She would go out into the villages presenting the gospel. And she said what she would do after she presented the gospel, she'd give the Bible in the lap of the Bible, the, the Chinese woman, and she'd have them read the Word of God. And you know what she began to see is she had the, she either would quote it if they didn't, couldn't read it or have them read it if they could read. But you know what she began to find? She began to see these Chinese ladies getting saved on the first gospel encounter. You know why? Because her dependence was on the Word of God. Now, you know one of the dangers with netcasters, I'm going to be honest with you, and you know one of the dangers of being a really good soul winner, and you know one of the dangers of being a gospel preacher who's done it for 37 years and preached the gospel literally hundreds of times? Do you know one of the dangers is? You can begin to depend on your illustrations. You can begin to depend on your ability to give the presentation. You can depend on your analogies. You can depend on your logic and all of that kind of thing. You can depend on your silver tongue. For some of you, it's, uh, well, anyway, it may not be silver. But anyway, you know what I'm talking about. You can depend on things. And I'm going to be honest with you. I, every once in a while, I think God allows there to be a situation where none of that works. Do you know why? Because God wants to remind you there is power in the Word of God. And there's sometimes a kid will be sitting there have with a blank stare on their face, and you know what you have to do? You have to just go back to the Word of God. And you have to pray and say, Lord, would you open their eyes? You preach, you either speak the Word of God or have them read the Word of God, and asking God to use His Word to get all of their hearts. So that's one of the dangers, is that we become good at gospel giving and depend on the presentation, the illustrations, the analogies, which, don't get me wrong, aren't bad. I, I use them every time I preach. But the dependence should be on the power of the Word of God. You get that? Okay, so that's where the power is. Uh, I remember years ago hearing the story of C.H. Spurgeon who was, day was preaching. Well, actually, he would rent the largest auditoriums in the city of London. And one day, uh, he had uh, rented an auditorium. And he, had a, he had a policy that he would never preach in an auditorium until he had gone into it when it was empty and brought an assistant with him and uh, tested its acoustics. Now, this is before sound systems, so it would be a little different than today. Or today, we trust that they, that engineering has already been done. But he would come in and he would quote Scripture while one of his assistants went to the far reaches of the auditorium to make sure that he could be heard. 
Now, of course, that was a different day. And uh, uh, that's what he was doing. He was just quoting one verse after another verse after another verse. His assistant was going to the far reaches of the auditorium to see if he could hear. And he quoted the verse, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Unbeknownst to both of them, there was a janitor in that room cleaning in that auditorium in some dark corner. He heard that verse of Scripture. It went like an arrow to his heart. And as a result, he got saved. Now, that's powerful, friends. There is power in the Word of God. Don't ever, listen, when you get into a soul winning encounter and it doesn't seem like it's going through, remember this, just ask God to use His Word. There is power in the Word of God. Okay, that's the first dynamic we're depending on this week. In fact, if we had a preacher come in and not open the Word of God and not preach what the Bible says, that'd be a problem. That's where the power is. But there's a second dynamic. I'm going to call these the dynamics of change. There's a second dynamic I want you to see here quickly in 1 Thessalonians. We'll see that one first. 1 Thessalonians. And I want us to see this second dynamic of change. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. These are familiar passages of Scripture, but let me get there quickly myself. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1, and I want you to look at verse number 5. Okay, very familiar verse of Scripture. says, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. Okay, the second dynamic that we're depending on is the power of the Holy Spirit. We're depending on the power of the Word, but we're also depending on the power of the Holy Spirit. It's like this, friends. The Bible puts them together. It says the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. Now, don't miss this. You do not want a spiritless sword, and you do not want a swordless spirit. Both dynamics are essential. They have to both be there. Is there such a thing as word-only preaching? And the answer is absolutely. Do you know what word-only preaching does? The Bible says the letter. Do you know what it does? Kills. But the Spirit giveth life. Word-only, every young man in this room ought to fear word-only preaching. Now, I grew up in the 1970s, 60s, 1960 I was born. Everybody knows that anyway. So, I was born, I hate to kind of tell my age, but anyway, once you hit that big six, oh, you know you're not just downhill, brother, you're accelerating. Okay, but anyway, so, uh, uh, but I was born in 1960. Now, look, Brother Himes, he's before 1960. Okay, but we'll just leave that alone for the moment. It's kind of nice to have someone a little older than me in the room. Okay, but anyway, uh, I was born in 1960, and I happened to witness the birth of the Christian school movement. Now, I want to just be very clear. Uh, I do love the Christian school movement. And one of the reasons I love it is because God used it in my life. Now, the Christian school movement, I think, has major problems. Don't get me wrong. And there are a lot of needs in the Christian school movement. No doubt about it. There's theological needs. There's practical needs. There's all kinds of needs. And maybe your parents decided that the Christian school near you wasn't going to work for you, and so they homeschooled you. Okay, that's fine. Don't get me wrong. But I love Christian schools. Now, I know that sounds funny because I was rescued by one. Okay, I was in the public school, fifth grade. I went to Chicago Public Schools for grades one, two, three, four. Uh, the summer after fourth grade, moved to the suburbs and went to fifth grade out in the suburbs. And I will tell you, I, uh, one of the things that helps me now preaching to unsaved teenagers all the time is I understand how they think. Because I will tell you, some of the most wicked kid people I've ever known were, were kids, elementary school age kids. The mouths, the dirty jokes, the filth, the things they talked about, things they did. And it helps me understand. If they're bad in elementary school, you know what it's going to be like in high school. Okay, so, so I, uh, I, I uh, certainly didn't participate in it, but I could see it influencing me. And I felt the drag in my fifth grade year particularly. I felt the pull, and it concerned me. 
And I remember my dad was going to start a Christian school first through fifth grade. The only problem was next year I was going to be in sixth grade and I was going to miss it. And I remember really my grandmother got a hold of that thing and she began to pray. She got began to pray that they'd move it to sixth grade. And they did. They moved to sixth grade. And I went to that sixth grade and was in Christian education ever since. Three girls, three guys were in my sixth grade class. And uh, some of you know Megan uh, Weber. Uh, her mother was my teacher that first year uh, in sixth grade. She taught me about every bit of English grammar I ever learned. I think I learned in sixth grade. I'm telling you, we hated it, but I'm telling you, we learned the English language. And we could diagram to this day, I thank the Lord, for Megan uh, Weber's mother. She was a great teacher. But anyway, I was my first year in Christian school. had a lot of public school in me. So I have a great appreciation for the Christian school movement. Don't get me wrong. And I thank God for the Christian school and its protection. But it, even in, as, a, as a teenager, now I've given my life to work in Christian schools. I'm in a different Christian school about every week of the school year. And uh, so I feel like uh, uh, there are few people in America that probably understand the movement better than I do because I'm in them, so many different ones, all coast to coast, and understand how the Christian school movement operates and how it thinks and, and all the movement, the different subcurrents in it. But all that aside, the thing I want you to understand about Christian school movement is early on, even in my Christian school, which I'm grateful for, I noticed something. I noticed something, and I don't know how to explain this because I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus. I'm really not. But I'm just going to tell you that we had chapel. I think sometimes we'd have it every day. I mean, it just depends on the school year and how they set things up. But I will tell you, in the early days, they had chapel every day. And I'm not trying to be unkind, but I will tell you, most of those chapels were terrible. They were, to use a Dr. Paulism, snooze fests. You know what I'm talking about? I am telling you, you'd have to fight to stay awake. But when you're in high school, you don't. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, you just give in. I'm telling you, I don't, I don't remember one thing I ever got from chapel growing up. I will tell you, the most exciting chapels were when my dad came in. He didn't preach often in chapel, but when he did, he usually livened it up a bit. But, uh, and I'm sure there were some exceptions. We had some visiting preachers that I felt did, 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 did a lot of good. But a lot of times, the preaching, I don't know how to explain this, at least for me, it was deadening. There was no life there. And can I say this? It wasn't neutral. It didn't help us. I think it hurt us. And honestly, to be honest with you, Christian school movement, that might be one of the things that has been a hard part of the Christian school movement is that very dynamic. It's important there is life when the Word of God is opened. No doubt about it. So let's go to another passage of Scripture real quickly, 1 Corinthians. And then we'll go to, to a final passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians, I want you to look at chapter number 2. 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. And uh, let's just look this briefly, and then we'll kind of tie this up, kind of help us kind of know where we're going for these next few days. It says in verse number 1 of chapter number 2, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. Now, i got a simple question for you, and I want you to answer it. Okay, here's the question. If Wisconsinites are Americans, Corinthians were... Where is it? Help me out now. If Wisconsinites are Americans... Corinthians are Grecians or Greeks. Now, when we think of people like Aristotle, Plato, uh, Plato, 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 Socrates, okay, when you think of those names, what, what would we call them today? We'd look back and call them philosophers. Okay, Greek culture was into philosophy. Now, in this passage of Scripture, here's what God's going to call philosophy, man's wisdom, 
Okay, that's what it's going to call it here in just a moment. Now, it's interesting, you know this uh, philosophy uses the word Sophia, which is the Greek word for wisdom. Don't we have, a, we have a Sophia here? I'm sure she's very wise. But anyway, okay, Sophia is wisdom. And Philos, of course, just like we get the city of brotherly love, Philos, everybody knows that's affectionate brotherly love, which is a huge oxymoron if you've ever been to Philadelphia. But anyway, I think the city of brotherly shove is far more appropriate. But uh, uh, no offense uh, to anybody that's from the area. It's just true. Okay, but um, so, um, oh yeah, I was going somewhere with that. Okay, love of wisdom is what philosophy means. And God's going to call it here through Paul. Uh, is going to call it a man's wisdom. So just think about this for a moment. He says, and I, brethren, oh, by the way, Greeks were also into oratory. You can see that in the book of Acts. They were into people getting up to spin philosophies of life. So you put those oratory and put philosophy together. And here it is. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified, which we all know the Greeks thought was foolishness, chapter 1. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with the enticing words of, here it is, man's wisdom. So we know what he's talking about here, philosophy. But in demonstration of what? The spirit and of power. Next verse, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in what? Power of God. You ever read a passage of Scripture and thought, man, it seems like it should say something else. Here's what I would think it would say. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the Word of God. But it doesn't say that. Should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Which means this. What Paul was pointing out was this. You know, when we came and preached to you, Corinthians, you know that something was different. In other words, when Paul preached, you know what those Corinthians thought? This is different. This isn't like the philosopher down the street, standing on the street corner, spinning his philosophy. This isn't like the guys up on the Acropolis trying to get a crowd. No, this is different. In other words, friends, what he was saying is, when you got saved, you did not trust man's wisdom. You trust the empowered word. I'm not diminishing the word. I'm just saying it was given with power, and God wanted to emphasize that. Because we know from verse number 2 that what was given was the gospel. Where's the gospel found? Clearly in the word of God. So the clarity is simply that the word of God was given with Holy Spirit power. That brings us to the second dynamic. Okay, spirit. We've got to have the power of the word and the power of the spirit. Now, where are we going to get the power of the Spirit? Now, obviously, as individual preachers, man, we have got to get alone with God, and we need to make sure that best we know we're depending on the Lord, surrender to Him, and that God can use us. But I will tell you, friend, if God wants to, uh, whatever God wants to do this week, I am sure one of the keys for the Holy Spirit being unleashed is prayer. Now, I haven't looked at the schedule yet. I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but I will tell you this. If we're going to see what we need to see this week, it will not happen without prayer. I will tell you, we've had three marvelous weeks. In fact, four if you count Martinsville. I've been a part of the team now for four of the weeks. And I will tell you, in each week we have seen a remarkable move of God. And I will tell you, everyone was a battle. Everyone was not easy. Everyone the devil was all over us. Everyone we felt like the devil's punching bag sooner or later in that week. Every one of them, every single one of them. And I will say the only thing that brought any kind of meaning out of the week, any kind of lasting change was Prayer. Why is prayer so important? Because that's what unleashes the Holy Spirit to be able to work where Satan is pushed back and the Holy Spirit has liberty to do what he's going to do. Now, I don't understand it all, but I know that prayer is a great part of the battle. I mean, it's a major part of the battle. And I'm just telling you, if you want life change in the lives of these young people, it's, I promise you it will not happen without prayer. It's not going to happen with prayer, without prayer. But if it, you have prayer, you put prayer in the mix, God's going to do something. I guarantee he is. 
So please understand the dynamics we need are the dependence on the Word and dependence on the Holy Spirit, and so much could be said there. Now, for your own edification, would you go with me to Acts chapter number 2? Acts chapter number 2. And I want us to, in Acts chapter number 2, really just look at three dynamics that the Bible tells us show up when there's the power of the Word and the power of the Spirit. Three things that I believe will show us this week that will happen in your heart, happen on the hearts of these young people if God shows up and the Word of God is preached. Okay, Acts chapter 2. Let's ask ourselves two questions. Number one, is Acts chapter 2 an example of a Word-filled message? And you say, well, preacher, it has to be. It's Acts chapter 2. Well, I want to ask you a question. When Peter got up to preach, did he say, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2? Is that what he did? There was no Acts chapter 2. Now, I personally don't know that Peter knew he was being inscripturated. You with me on that? Now, maybe he did, but I don't know that he did. So, what did he do in Acts chapter 2? Where did his authority come from? It did not come from Acts chapter 2. His authority came from, anybody tell me? It came from, well, the Holy Spirit, but there's another dynamic. What was the truth? He, there was three Old Testament passages. Did you know that? Three Old Testament passages, Joel and two in Psalms. Did you know that Peter proved the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament? Could you do that? Well, if you can't, study Acts chapter 2 and you can find out how to do it. So there it is. Okay, Acts chapter number 2 is a great passage, but it is a dependence. Peter's authority is based on the Word. It's no doubt about it. His audience, obviously, were people that believed the Bible, and that's where he went. Okay, now let's ask the second question. Was it a message that was filled with the Holy Spirit? Was it attended with Holy Spirit power? And the answer is, well, yes, look at verse number 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Ghost, okay, so we know Peter was among them. So, so that's, that's pretty clear. So both dynamics seem to be operating. Let's just remind ourselves what happens when that happens. Look at verse number 22. Ye men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves all, all, also know. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. You know what that's called? That's called rip-roar and confrontational preaching. I'm telling you. And I'm telling you, a few chapters later in Acts chapter 7, we got another one. Good old Stephen gets up and says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. Wow, that's good stuff, isn't it? Boy, that'll preach. I'm sure if I'd have come back, glowered at you, got in the pulpit, glowered at you, not said any open remarks, just looked out at you and said, Ye uh, wicked and uncircumcised in heart, ye do always resist the Holy Spirit. Man, you'd say there's going to be a great chapel. Hallelujah, man. It's coming at us. Okay. You know, that's pretty strong preaching, isn't it? Now, I want you to understand something. I have heard preachers who have been very confrontational, but God wasn't in it. And you know what that does? Kills. But I have heard messages that I'm telling you, it's like everybody in the auditorium dismissed, and it was me and God. You ever been there? You ever been there where you're thinking, this preacher's been living in my life the last few weeks? It's like, I mean, man, he must have a chip somewhere. He's hearing everything. Well, I guarantee you, he's not living there, but the Holy Spirit is, and I hate to tell you, he told on you. Okay, he told on you. But the Holy Spirit's a gentleman. Usually he keeps you anonymous. Not all the time. If you're a real rascal, he might not. But sometimes he does. He keeps you anonymous on the deal. I'm telling you, recently I was sitting in a message. preacher didn't know me. I didn't really know the preacher. And I'm telling you, it was like my name was written all over that message. You ever had that happen? I'm telling you, I don't necessarily enjoy it, but I'm glad God does it. Aren't you? <laughs> see, that's the point I want you to see. Holy, Spirit-filled, uh, Word-filled messages will confront you. Now, I'm all for teaching. The Bible needs to be taught. But the difference between teaching and preaching largely is this, application. 
application. And I will tell you one of the keys some of you guys learn in preaching is preach to the conscience of men using the sword of the Spirit. Okay, it's not your opinion, it's what the Bible says. There should be no daylight between the Bible and your application. You with me on that? No daylight. And there's ways to do that. If you come to one of our evangelists, Amaya Revival Preaching, I'll show you how to get application with no daylight between the Word of God. And it's very important you do that. Okay, but uh, time prevents me from going into that for the moment. But the point is that the Word of God confronts us. Word-filled, Spirit-filled preaching, the Spirit of God will always wield the sword. And when He wields the sword, He applies it to your life. Not the guy next to you, you. So, very first thing you can expect if God shows up this week is for the sword to do a work in your own heart. Okay? The second thing that happens is found, if you would please, down, and I've got to get this, uh, I've gotten all over here, yeah, my phone here is doing its dinging thing. I, you ever forget until you turn off your phone? You guys, of course, don't, okay, because you get in trouble. But anyway, I forget. Okay, did it again. Okay, so let's go to, um, uh, let's go to verse number 37. It says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Number two, word-filled, spirit-filled preaching, not just confronts, it convicts. It will confront. In fact, it was Charles Finney who wrote an article, How to Preach as to Convert Nobody. Do you guys want to learn how to preach so nobody gets saved? Here's how you do it. Point number four, preach on the sins of the absent. Preach on the sins of the absent. I will tell you, it's not rocket science, but every week of the year that I'm in ministry, I'm preaching to unsaved teenagers. And I will tell you, friends, you've got to preach on their sins. You don't preach on cheating on your income tax. You don't preach on voting for Democrats. You know what I'm talking about? You don't preach on sin like that. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, can't vote. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? You know what? That'd be a great message. Why it's a sin to vote for a Democrat. That'd be a great message. Got to preach that sometime. Probably go viral. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? I'll probably get death threats on the deal. Okay, I've changed my name. But anyway, okay. I'll just, I'll just go into a pseudonym. Okay, I'll go into Paul Himes. That's what I'll do. Okay, yeah, there we go. I'll preach it. Okay, so uh, there we go. But, um, but, you know, I'm not preaching on that kind of stuff. I'm not, I'm not preaching on uh, robbing Medicare. You know what I'm talking about, these kids. I'm not preaching on that. Now, if I'm with Brother Himes, I'll preach on that. You know what I'm talking about? But I, I, I am not, I'm not going to do that. You know why? Because that's not where they're living. So you've got to preach where they're living. And uh, so you, you understand that when the Holy Spirit is leading, He will lead you to applications. There's many times any preacher on planet Earth will tell you, when you are preaching, there are times you'll make applications you never planned on making. And many times you'll think to yourself, where did that come from? I remember that happening years ago, and a guy coming up to me dead serious afterwards, and he said, Brother Van Gelder, when you said that, were you looking at me? I'm saying, that's a guilty conscience. You know what I'm talking about? I'm telling you, he said, that's a, he said, even if you weren't, he said, that is exactly what I needed to hear. I'm thinking, that wasn't, I don't even know where that came from. You know, the Holy Spirit loves you enough to guide the preacher to give you something that will shake you up. You with me? So, uh, Holy Spirit, conf- uh, first of all, conf- confronts you. Number two, He will convict you. And it's interesting because you find in Acts 7, there Stephen says they were cut to the heart. Same idea. 
And of course, if you know anything about Stephen's message, it was confrontational, as I mentioned a moment ago. It was word-filled, spirit-filled, same as Acts 2. It was a different, it was a narrative, different kind of message than Peter's. I would probably lean toward preaching more like Peter, and, and uh, some of you might lean toward preaching like Stephen. But the point is, both of them were spirit-filled, word-filled messages. Both of them confronted, and both of them convicted. But last of all, I want you to notice this. Look what it says in verse 41. Oh, I've got to just give you this quote. You've heard me say it before, but I want you to get this down. I like this. The late Dr. Bill Rice, I'm not sure if it's original with him, said this. Throw a rock into a pack of dogs, and the one that, hit, uh, the one that yelps is the one that got hit. Okay, now I'm going to tell you something, friends. That's good. Okay? So let me just encourage you. If you ever got hit, don't yelp. Why would you yelp? You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever noticed people to yelp? I've had people yelp, and I'm thinking, why would you do that? So, you know, the next time somebody yelps, like, oh, that preacher, he has no business. He shouldn't be saying that. Here's what you need to do. Put your arm around him, point real big, and say, hey, here's the dog that got hit. Okay, <laughs> I'll cure him. Okay, it'll cure him. Okay, but um, some of you, um, you have, some of you freshmen might not uh, learn that yet, so some of you seniors just help them walk out in the lunchroom and just put your arm around and, hey, here's the guy who got hit. Okay, that'll help them out, cure him a little bit, keep their mouth shut. I don't know about you. When I get hit, I'm not broadcasting it. You know what I'm talking about? I can't understand why people do. Okay. But um, that's the idea, convicts. And that brings us to the final point here in verse 41. Then they that gladly received the word were baptized, and the same day they were added to them about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly. Wow. They changed. They changed. So, number one, it will confront. Number two, it will convict. And number three, it will change. How many in this room can remember a message that was preached that hit you between the eyes? And you would say, I've not lived it perfectly since that message, but I can honestly save, say, it altered the direction of my life in a positive way. Would you raise your hand, please? Okay, there he is. I didn't, wasn't expecting it. Even I don't know that many. I was expecting some, but wow. Okay, so sometimes it can be a very dramatic where you see it happening, and that's obviously what we're after. Change. Life change. It's supernatural. And that's what it's all about. Well, you might be here and you might say, no, wait a second, preacher, that's not quite fair because Acts chapter 7, they didn't change. And you know what my contention is? Oh, yeah, they did. They were nice people. And you know what they turned into? Murderers. Now, don't miss this. When God's Holy Spirit shows up on a message, no one can leave the same. Let me just say this. When the Holy Spirit shows up on your front porch and starts ringing the doorbell, you will not walk out those doors the same. It's impossible. Now, here's the danger of the Degeneration Youth Summit. You know what it is? It's for the Holy Spirit of God to convict you and for you to say no. Now, don't miss this. Every time God's Holy Spirit checks, checks, uh, checks in on your front porch, you will either leave closer to God or you will leave farther from Him. You will either leave softer or you will leave harder. When God's Holy Spirit begins to work in your heart, you cannot be the same. Do you see that? You'll either be Acts 7 and reject, resist, as Stephen so famously said. You do always resist the Holy Spirit. Or you'll be like Acts 2 and receive. You cannot receive and resist at the same time. You're either receiving or resisting. Now, let me encourage you at the outset of this saying, God, I don't care how tough it is. But whatever you speak me about these days, I want to receive it. I do not want to resist it. I don't want to walk out softer. I mean, uh, harder. I want to walk out softer. You've heard it. The sun, the same sun that hardens the clay, is the same sun that melts the wax. So what is your heart made of? Wax or clay? Well, this week you'll find out. See, you'll find out. 
And I'm just begging you, freshmen, sophomores, even those older. But now some of you remember back freshman, sophomore year in the Generation Youth Summit. God particularly used that as a turning point in your life. And I'll tell you why. Because you received. You received. Don't resist. Receive it. And I will encourage you, friends, that I've certainly seen this in youth groups where Sometimes I'll go into a church and you can just tell it's kind of loosey-goosey. It's more evangelical, broadly evangelical in its philosophy. And you see it in the youth department. They're a bunch of nice, sweet kids, but you know, you, 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 they're pretty much all defeated. They're kind of defeated together. They're not rebels. You know why they're not rebels? I'm going to tell you why they're not rebels. Because you can't rebel against nothing. It's impossible. If you ever go to a country that has no speed limit, you know what? You can't break it. You cannot rebel against the speed limit when there is none. So when you go to churches that have no, you know, pretty much loosey-goosey, never preach the Bible, never preach, may apply the Bible, you have a bunch of warm and fuzzy kids that are all defeated, all worldly. There's sometimes sweet kids, they'll talk about Jesus, they'll sing contemporary Christian music, you know what I'm talking about. And, uh, but, but here's the point. Where I have seen the most godly kids on fire for God, I usually see the hardest. You know why? Because the moments of the Holy Spirit showing up in a service that one group received, the other group resisted. Wow. That's kind of telling, isn't it? In every revival that ever shows up, it doesn't mean everybody's revived. Do you know that some get harder? Hopefully it's a very small group or maybe non-existent. If it's one of those sweeping revivals I've seen from time to time. But that's the danger this week. You know what it is? To resist the Holy Spirit. That's the danger. I will, I'll just conclude with this. I was... Several years ago, preaching at uh, Galilean Baptist Church, which uh, Dr. Brother Himes, I may have given this, I'm sure I've given this uh, illustration, but I'll just conclude with it. Brother Himes' uh, grandfather pastor started the church in 1932 and pastored, I think, through 1940, if I'm remembering uh, my study correctly. And uh, I was preaching the church. It moved since from Dallas down to Cedar Hill, I think it was. And it was uh, not a real big church at the time. It had been big at one time, a smaller church at the time. And it had been years since Dr. Rice had been there, decades actually. I was a young preacher at the time. It was the 1980s. I was a kid preacher. Now, let me just tell you guys that are young. Man, relish being a young preacher. It's fun being a young preacher because you can just preach on anything and people say, oh, he's young. He'll learn. You know what I'm talking about? You know what happens when I do that? Man, he ought to know better than that. You know, that's what happens now. Okay. So I enjoyed being a young, just a young whippersnapper, you know, and just preach on anything. And uh, I remember one pre- pastor got up after I preached on moral purity. He said, today we've heard the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I thought it was hilarious. Okay. He's basically saying, this guy's a nut. Okay. You know, I, he was looking for the honey and the, and, the, and the locusts and all that kind of stuff. Okay. But anyway, so um, uh, I, I was preaching there. I was 28 years old. Man, having a good old time, just preaching on moral. Keep thyself pure. You, I used to have a message, keep thyself pure. It came out different every time. I just hit everything I could think of. I'd start at A, preach to Z, preach on everything about moral purity, TV, I mean movies. I mean, we'd just go after the whole mess. And it was a lot of fun. Okay, so I was just having that, having a good old time, preaching through keep thyself. It was not an expository message, Dr. Paul. I've learned since then. Okay, but anyway, I was just preaching away on, on that passage. And I'm telling you, it came time for the invitation. A man came forward with a red face. And he grabs the pastor, and the pastor's like right here, I'm right here, pastor's right here. And he looks up over the pastor, and he is, I realize he was, he might have been under conviction, but he was not broken, he was mad. And he looked up at me, and he said, young man, you've got a lot to learn, which could have been true, I get that. But the whole church heard it, and it was one of those scenes, you know what I'm talking about? It was just one of those 
The pastor's daughter starts crying. You know, just one of those days they could, this is, uh, she has a gift of mercy, of course. And, uh, you know, I'm the prophet. I saw it, man, I got a little fired up, preached a little more sermon there, right there. That, I mean, it was just not a good scene. Now, again, I, I, I probably, if I heard the message today, I'd say, you know, I'd probably have tempered that a little bit differently. But, you know, I was young. I really was. And um, I remember finished preaching and, and uh, everybody kind of dismissed, everybody was kind of leaving. And there was a man in his, I'm guessing 70s, maybe even closer to 80, his name was Manny Hughes. Manny Hughes came walking up to me. He had been in that church since uh, the 1930s, been there decades. He's now, of course, with the Lord. He did not reference the event that morning at all. But I remember Manny Hughes grabbing my hand, and I know as an older saint, he was trying to encourage this young preacher. And he looked at me and said, Brother Van Gelderen, he said, in 1932, he said, John R. Rice came to Dallas, Texas, and said, when he did so, these hands were stained with tobacco. But in 1940, when John R. Rice left Dallas, Texas, he said the tobacco stains were gone. And do you know what Manny Hughes was trying to tell this young preacher? Don't get discouraged, young preacher. Word-filled, spirit-filled preaching changes lives. And friends, I believe in the next few days it can change our lives and change the lives of the young people coming in. Let's not forget the dynamics of change.